have those days where you're a little fuzzy-headed, and uh, I'm kind of having one of those days today. Um, probably shouldn't tell you that right before I'm about to preach to you, huh? The, Laura's been gone four days, and so it's just, you know, a lot of pizza, pizza rolls, nachos, that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> anyway, surviving, and uh, excited to be in the Word this morning with you this morning. But I, I tell you that, just in case I zone off somehow, you wake me up and get me going back in the Word again. Um, so anyway, grab a Bible. Let's uh, find our ways over to Luke chapter 23 this morning. We're going to begin in verse 32 of Luke 23. <clears throat> now, um, we are fast approaching the Advent season, this, this time of year when the church has historically celebrated the coming of our, our Savior, His birth. And, and, and I tell you that because it's a little weird this year because uh, we're at the, the other end of Luke, right? Usually you're at the front of Luke when you're coming through Advent. Uh, but we're not. We're at the other end. And, uh, you know, today we're, we're going to see the cross today. We're, we're headed towards the resurrection, which is going to feel weird as we're uh, coming into December and we're singing about the birth of Christ. And yet we're, we're in the Word talking about His death and, and resurrection. And, and, and I trust the Lord's providence in this, that there is something uh, for us, good reason for this. But I just want you to know it's going to be a little weird in that regard. Uh, now, if you weren't here last week, let me catch you up just real quick. <clears throat> Jesus has been beaten and flogged uh, so extensively, so horribly so, that at some point on his way to the place where he's to be crucified, um, he, he simply was unable to carry the cross beam of the cross any further. And, and there's this man, Simon of Cyrene, uh, who was compelled, he was forced by the Roman soldiers there to carry it for him. And, and that's where we left off, right? He's on his way to his cross, uh, to the cross, and now he's going ahead, and, and Simon's been behind him, and they, and they get to the place. So that's where we're going to pick up. Uh, and today we're going to learn about these, these two thieves on the cross, uh, and that little, it's kind of broken up. We're going to actually deal with the thieves next week. We're going to look at that in, in more detail, uh, that the, the were crucified along his side. But we're actually going to unpack Jesus' interaction uh, next week, and we're going to focus on other things this week. So my, my hope is that uh, as we focus on these, these words of our Savior today, my, my prayer is that we would all come to know the Lord better, to understand our Lord's heart, to understand his love, his sacrifice, uh, his emptying of himself for sinners like you, sinners like me, uh, sinners like everyone who, who believes in the gospel. So, and so we're going to be doing something uniquely Christian as we come to this passage, and we do it every week. And, and what I mean by that is we're going to be, be believing that these words of, of our Lord, of Jesus, have something to say to us, to our lives, nearly 2,000 years after Jesus spoke these words. Uh, and so we're going to do that as we, we read this passage. And again, we're in Luke 23, uh, beginning in verse uh, 32. There you go. I zoned out for a second, right? Verse 32. Follow along. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right side and one on his left side. And Jesus said, Father... Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. The grass withers, the flower fades. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please remove the distractions of last week and silence the distractions of next week. Grant that we may be here in this place, in this moment, for this is your holy word and you have given it to your church. Help us to understand these words. Help us to know Jesus better because of them. Help us to understand ourselves better and how we might, in the power of the Holy Spirit, grow in our our love for you and our love for others. Lord, if anything from my lips is not in accordance with your word this morning, may it be quickly forgotten. And if it be true, I ask that, that it would leave a lasting mark upon your people. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so we'll get to the prayer of our Lord today, but before we, we do, there, do that, uh, I want to address a couple details in this passage, right? The, the place that Jesus actually is crucified was called the skull, right, here? Uh, but that's not the term that we usually hear when we hear about this place. What, what's it usually referred to as? Do you know? Golgotha, right? That's one of those uh, few words. Do you even know what language you're speaking when you say Golgotha? Aramaic. A few of you are like, oh, Aramaic, we know. All right, you're on top of things. It's Aramaic, you're right. It's just a transliteration of an Aramaic word meaning skull. There's how you get to that place, right? The place of the skull. Now, we don't know for sure why it's called the skull. The most obvious uh, assumption, anyway, is because this is the place where so many deaths, so many executions occurred, uh, and so it makes sense that you might call it the place of the skull. Uh, Now, we also learn here that these soldiers uh, are casting lots for Jesus' clothing. Uh, Lots is just a a dice-rolling kind of sort of game. uh, And and, and the reason it's recorded here, the reason that it it has any significance at all right here is is that it actually fulfills a prophecy uh, from Psalm 22, 18, where where we we, we read this, they divide my garments among them, and my clothing, for my clothing they cast lots. There's so many of these Old Testament prophecies that come true in the the life of Christ and, and the death of Christ even here. Uh, There's also this contrast between, on the one hand, the Jewish people, you'll see them in verse 35, who are silently watching Jesus' crucifixion, and on the other hand, the the Jewish leaders who scoff at our Lord. Remember, scoffing is just an old word, really, that means mocking Jesus. Can you hear their voice as they speak those words in, in verse 35? He saved others. Let him save himself. If he's the Christ, if he's the chosen one, they're mocking him for how, how, can, how can this be the Messiah nailed to a cross, right? Now, mocking can be contagious. It often is. It, it proves to be so here as the Roman soldiers join these Jewish leaders and begin to mock the, the man under their um, control at this point. Uh, first, the soldiers offer Jesus sour wine. And, and sour wine is just normal wine. It's the kind of wine they would have drank. It didn't have anything bad in it here. Uh, they weren't trying to help him with this. The, the wine would have simply prolonged his life further, would have given him longer time to suffer had he drank it. Uh, they also make a show of, of mocking our Lord, right? They're saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They throw out that condition, right? Prove you're the king of the Jews. In other words, just saying, we know you're not who you say you are because you're not doing what we say you should do if you are. They put out that. Now, it was a, a common to put a sign above someone who was being crucified. And, and the reason was to tell those passing by, this is the crime that this person actually committed. Right? It's a, a way of shaming them even further on, on one level. It's kind of like those, those pet shaming signs. You ever seen them? They hang the sign around their dog and it says something like, I ate all the pillows on the couch, and it just shames their dog. I saw one the other day that said, uh, uh, I ate a whole bottle of glitter, and now my poop sparkles. It's just this 
shaming their dog somehow. Now, now those shaming signs, they're, they're meant for humor. They mostly are funny. Uh, and the dog's always, you know, some poor golden retriever looking pathetic there. But, but, but the signs that were actually hung above the cross, right, of those being crucified, these actually served as warnings to others. Uh, they, they said things like murderer. They said things like thief or traitor, whatever the offense, whatever it is that led to them being nailed to a cross and hung out there to die in this public place while they just went through this excruciating pain and everyone watched it. And the idea is you look at that and you think, yeah, I don't want that to be me. And so whatever crime it is you're wanting me to commit with you, whatever you're tempted to do, if you don't want to end up on a cross like that person, you wouldn't do it. And, and that's why they put him up there. So above Jesus, these Roman soldiers write, King of the Jews. It doesn't fit the other categories, does it? Traitor, thief, murderer, any of those things. Now, we, we recognize that title because at the start of this chapter, you remember the, the Roman governor, Pilate, right? He asked Jesus, uh, he, he said, are you the king of the Jews? And do you remember what Jesus' response was? You have said so. They, they wrote it as a condemnation. They're not really saying, hey, this is your king. They're, they're saying that this man, this crazy man claims to be the king of the Jews. That's what he says. But, but Christian, you and I, we, we truly profess this. These mocking words about Jesus, we truly profess that he is the king of the Jews. Not only that, he's the king of kings. And yet at this moment, it's, it's pretty obvious that he does not fit the worldly image of a king. He's far from it, in fact. He lacked political and military power. He lacked the things that we, we want to see in a, in a king. Right? And, and so if you're coming by and you're saying, this is our king right here, nailed to this cross, beaten, bleeding everywhere, you know, uh, clearly going to die here at the hands of, of the Roman soldiers. Oh, this is your king, is he? And so then I, I want to spend some of our time thinking on the Lord's words here. You, you see them there in verse 34. It's a prayer. He's speaking to his heavenly Father, our heavenly Father. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who's Jesus talking about here? Who is them in this passage? Is it the, the soldiers who drove the nails through his hands and its feet, his feet? Is it the unjust pilot? who ordered this to happen? Is it Judas who betrayed him, you know, the night before? Is it is them, the, the complicit crowds who, who are chanting, right? Crucify, crucify him, not long before this. Is it the Jewish leaders who have been pushing this all along and at this moment are mocking him? Is, is that who he's talking about? The truth is, Jesus could mean merely the soldiers before him. He absolutely could. He could also be speaking about everyone whose actions have led to this moment, Either way, the significance of our Lord's words here do, do not change. They just, they don't. Can you be honest about your own heart for a moment? I mean, going into this, I, I, here's the question. Do you find it difficult to forgive people? Truly, do Do you? Right? Is there a name or a face of, of someone who pops into your mind when you think about right, the exception, right? The one you can't forgive. I mean, what, how, how do you work? Do you, do you forgive and let go of, of offenses done against you easily? 
Or, or do you prefer to keep them somewhere in your, in your mind? You have this spreadsheet in your mind, right? This mental spreadsheet of what others have, have maliciously done to you or who have accidentally done to you or just happened to do to you all the time, right? Some of us actually kind of like to hold on to bitterness. Is that you? And yet, it might be, it really might be, and yet here is Jesus, the author of life, betrayed by one of his closest disciples in Judas, denied by Peter, another one of his disciples, unjustly being executed, publicly mocked. This is God incarnate. God incarnate And he could absolutely just call down lightning bolts on these soldiers. He could call down a legion of angels, right? Or he could cause the earth to just open up and swallow them in an instant right here. Jesus could have simply willed these soldiers to just melt like wax in an open fire. That's what he could have done to their mocking. That's what he could have done to all these sins that are being committed against him specifically in this moment. He could have done that. But our Lord, he doesn't. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus Jesus prays for the souls of his mockers, his executioners, and and he does it while while hanging upon the cross in the the midst of excruciating pain, right? It's not like when he thought about it way later, like the way you and I might think about it. He does it right in the midst of the worst of it. He asks God the Father to forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, he doesn't mean that they're completely ignorant of what they're doing. Right? None of these men would have just been shocked to have heard later that, that Jesus had been crucified, right? You, you know, two guys talking, right? You, you know that man that we were, we were trying to get crucified? Yeah, I remember him. Well, get this, they crucified him. What? No, nobody would have been shocked in that moment. They, they know that, right? They know they're executing an innocent man. They're totally aware of what they're doing on that level. But, but even if they don't fully grasp that... Um, Ignorance is not an excuse for sin, right? They're not innocent because of that. You, you can't just tell the officer, I, I didn't know I was speeding because I didn't actually know what the speed limit was. I know that because I actually tried that in college and it didn't work, uh, right? You're supposed to know what the posted speed limit is, just service mentioned right there, right? You're supposed to know. In other words, ignorance is not innocence, it's not. Sin is sin, even if we refuse to acknowledge it, which is why I'm, I'm sure you and I are all far more sinful than we're even aware of. Think about that for a moment. Right? You, you know the sins. You've got the ones on your list that you're fighting and that come up often that you struggle with, and you're like, that's my list of sins. And, and the reality, there's so much more you're not even aware of. You don't even, you don't even, it doesn't even show up on your radar right now. And some of you know that because every time you start to have any sort of, sort of like uh, success or, or get, you know, begin to see the, the Spirit work in your life and, and you start crushing some of these sins out of your life, uh, you begin to say, oh, that was a whole new set of them. Didn't even know they were there. Didn't even recognize them. In, anyways, in, in this prayer, Jesus is saying that, that they're unaware of the magnitude of their actions. They, they didn't truly understand the depth of just how evil what they're doing is. They are murdering God incarnate. 
They, they are crucifying on a cross the holy and righteous one. Right? That's why, why Peter later in Acts 3, uh, 3.15 says, You killed the author of life. That's pretty significant. Now, now can you imagine the, the weight if, if, if they did understand what they'd done? I, I mean... You and I, we can say, right, we, we sang it just earlier, right, that we are responsible because of our, our sin, right? That's why Jesus is on the cross. We're part of it. We just are. He didn't, apart from our sin, he didn't have to go to the cross. And so we are, in that way, right, responsible. But we share that guilt with every other child of God. And yet, there was a soldier who actually drove the nail through Jesus' hand, through the hand of God. And at some point in his life or in death, he became fully aware of what he had done. Can you imagine that? In some sense, the worst sin you've ever committed doesn't doesn't seem quite like that, does it? It's enough to make you guilty, that's for sure. Your sin. But, But so was the smallest sin you ever committed. And I only point this out so that you can see from this prayer of Jesus that even this most horrendous sin can be forgiven. Some of you need to to know that, to to really know that, right? That no matter what terrible sin you have committed, even that can be forgiven by the blood of Christ. Even that. And so there's something intriguing about Jesus' words here. Uh, In Mark 2, one of my favorite passages, actually the first passage I ever preached on in my life. um, Anyway, in Mark 2, a a paralyzed man is, is lowered through the roof of a house uh, by his friends to Jesus because they couldn't get to him. And, and so Jesus says to this paralytic man, he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. He declares them forgiven. Luke 7, right, a, a bit later, 748, Jesus tells the woman who, who washed his feet with her tears, he, he tells her that her sins are forgiven. So did you notice in this passage, Jesus doesn't pronounce the sins of his executioners forgiven? He didn't say that. He didn't declare that. He, he prays. He asks God the Father to forgive them. You know, and, and Jesus is God, right? He is. And, and he has authority to forgive sins, right? And so why in the world does he ask the Father to forgive sins now instead of just declaring it so? This is, this is rich. Jesus is on the cross. He is in our place. And He's there for me and you and, and all who would believe and, and trust in him with faith. That's why he's there. He has, he has emptied himself. He has taken on our sin and he hangs there as our representative. And in this prayer, he has identified wholly and completely with his people whom he's redeeming in this very act. Our sin, you get this, is upon Jesus and so he does not execute this authority. That's not the position he's in in this moment. Instead, he prays to his father for those who are executing him. And again, it's, it's possible for the very Romans and the very Jews who crucified the Lord of Lords to have later come to faith in Christ to have found redemption. In fact, that's why Jesus prays for them. And that's why you pray for people you know. You're not wasting your time when you pray for God to give faith to your friend or or your relative, even those that seem to have the most hardened heart you could possibly imagine, that that you just think there's no way, I can't see them ever coming to faith. They're either too hardened against it, too apathetic to it. 
Listen, there are no unsavable people. Do you know that? Do you believe that? God can redeem even the most apathetic. There are no unsavable people. Not from our perspective. Our prayers as God's people should absolutely reflect that. Now, I'm sure it's crossed some of your minds by now that uh, those who Jesus is praying for, they, they haven't asked for forgiveness. There, there hasn't been any faith. There hasn't been any um, repentance, right? And, and, and that doesn't fit well with, with Luke 17, 3, 4, where Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Right? Forgiveness always follows repentance, meaning the, uh, the forgiven individual seeks forgiveness. Now, now, don't lose sight here because Jesus doesn't just forgive them. He, he prays for them. And, and one aspect of Jesus' prayer, what he's asking God the Father for, even if it's not spoken here, is that God would grant them hearts which know their sin and, and hearts that desire to repent and, and to turn to Jesus. That's what's behind that. Now, now, there's some incredible application for us in these words of our Lord here. In Luke 6.35, Jesus says, Love your enemies and do good. You could probably spend a lifetime on that phrase right there. Love your enemies and do good. Um, in Matthew 5.44, Jesus teaches his disciples saying, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? Not just people that think different than you. People who actually persecute you, who are after you because of your faith. And then here in our passage today, Jesus models how to love and pray for our enemies, right? We see that here. In fact, I mean, listen to this. Later, right, the first Christian martyr, the first Christian killed for his or her faith, right, is a a man named Stephen. It's recorded in the the book of Acts, and it shouldn't surprise us that that Jesus follows, or Stephen follows Jesus' example that we see here on the cross, right? The the Jews there are, are angry at Stephen, Uh, Some of them from Cyrene, if you remember from last week, they're throwing rocks at Stephen because they want to kill him with these rocks. That's what they intend to do. That's what they do. Uh, In Acts 7, 60, we read this of Stephen. Falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he he fell asleep. He died. They, They had murdered him. Stephen prayed for these evil men, even in the midst of them murdering him. What should surprise us as we read this is how little most of us, I'll speak to myself here, actually follow this example of our Lord. And my prayer is that today we'd begin learning this this difficult call on our lives to to love our enemies and to pray for them. Because I'll admit, that's, that's not high on my list. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray for my family, my friends the neighbors that I like, right? These are the people we pray for. But to pray for the, my enemies, the people that drive me nuts, not against them, right? Not like smite them God kind of stuff, but actually pray for them. It, it's just how little we do that. It, it can be difficult to pray for your enemies. And it, it's true, you, you can't forgive someone who doesn't ask for it, but you, you can have a posture of heart that is genuinely ready and willing to forgive. Or earlier in our worship service, we, we prayed together the Lord's Prayer, right? We prayed, forgive us our debts, meaning our sin. Hopefully you've caught on to that. Um, as we forgive our debtors, meaning those who sin against us. Because we all know that, that, that not only before God, but in regards to others as well, at, at times, actually, quite often in our life, we have been the one who needs to be forgiven. 
you have been the one who needs to be forgiven. We have been the gossiping friend. We have been the liar, the deceiver. We have been the one who, who lusted after something or someone. We have been the betrayer of trust. We have been the bold-faced thief in one manner or another. We have been the harbors of, of bitterness and, and been the venom-tongued commenters on, on social media, right? We, we know what it means to be the sinners who need forgiveness. We know that. We have comp, uh, accumulated so much debt. Piles and piles of sin, and in the gospel, the Lord forgives it all, every last sense, even future debt that will continue to accumulate until, until our final day. In Christ, it's forgiven. You see, what's crazy about forgiveness is that the, the one who forgives is the one who, who pays the debt. Jesus pays the debt for our forgiveness, and in a much smaller, nuanced way, we pay the debt for those who sin against us. Now, don't stream me up on heresy yet. Uh, let me explain that a little bit. Uh, it cost us something to forgive another human. It, it cost us the drama of sharing details of what someone has done to you, right? Because you're not going to bring it up. You're not going to throw it back in someone's face. And so you forgive someone and that's, that's done and, and you, you miss out on being able to explain, listen to what they did to me. Isn't that horrible? It, it cost us the, the self-righteous pride where, where we get to sit back and, and feel like the innocent victim in a situation, it cost us the bitterness that for some reason we kind of enjoy, right? And, and we want to hold on to. We, we hold on to that bitterness like Linus with his blanket or, you know, something beloved. We, we, we like the affirmation when, when someone tells us, you, she did what to you? Really? You have every right to be bitter at her. You do. You can be mad as you wanted her. We like that for some reason. And listen, I'm telling you, even if the sin against you justifies the feeling of bitterness and anger by, by someone's standard, I, I'm telling you that's not the way of your Lord. It's not. That, that's not the way of the gospel. That is not the way of joy and peace and life and hope. And so we must start letting go of bitterness so that we are ready to forgive, so that we can pray and ask God genuinely to forgive those who sin against us and, and to give us Right, that Holy Spirit-driven ability to actually forgive someone truly. You who believe the gospel, you know what it's like to be forgiven of great sin. You, you know what it's like. At least I, I hope you do. You should. And, and so pray for your enemies to know that forgiveness as well. Decide today that you'll forgive anyone who seeks it and also pray for those who won't seek it. Pray that, that they will go to God and seek that forgiveness that they need. Pray like our Lord does on the cross here. Pray in that, that manner, right? Father, forgive my colleague who, whose dishonesty has put us in a terrible situation. For, forgive the, the doctor who, whose neglect or malpractice has, has left me in, in pain. For, forgive that teacher who just seems out to get me for some reason. Forgive that girl in my class who's constantly trying to hurt me with her low-key insults. But Father, for, forgive that woman who is stealing my clients, that man who is stealing my ideas. Forgive that guy who is slandering my reputation. Forgive my parents who neglected me in this way or that way. Forgive my, my spouse who cheated, the, the pastors or elders who failed to shepherd me well, right? It, whatever it might be. And it, it won't be easy, but God desires for us to pray for our enemies. That should be the only reason we need. That's what God 
calls us to, commands us to. To pray for our, our enemies, right? Or as we might also call them, pray for those fellow sinners who need Jesus. And so then, death exists because sin exists. Uh, we'll end with this. As Paul says in Romans 3.23, he says, The wages of sin is death, right? Because of sin, what you actually have earned is death. All, all flesh eventually returns to death. Those are the words of our Lord, of God spoken in Genesis 3.19, right? For the, you are dust, and the dust you shall return. Except there's an exception to this, right? We already know the rest of the story we're looking at today. Well, what about Jesus? Did he become dust? You know he didn't. I hope you know he didn't. If you didn't know, now you know he didn't become dust. Even if you struggle to believe that some days, the, the work of the Spirit in your life renews your confidence in the truth that Jesus did not become dust. Because while his body was beginning the process of decaying, God returned a beat to his heart. He returned activity to his brain. He returned air to his lungs and life to his limbs. And in his resurrection, Jesus became the first of many who will raise to life with God for all of eternity. And you and I, because of the inherited sin of Adam, because of our own sins committed uh, in our hearts and outwardly, we, we are deserving of eternal rejection from God. We, we, are, we have earned eternal damnation. But because of the cross, if our faith is in Jesus, our sins are truly forgiven. And, and if we can be forgiven so much, if you can be forgiven so much by our sinless Savior, how much more ought we who daily fall on the mercy of God to be willing to forgive fellow sinners who sin against God and sin against us and sin against those that we love. And I'll say this, if you're here with us today and you don't know if your sin has been forgiven, I want you to know because of Jesus your sin can be forgiven. If you have more questions about this passage, about death and sin and forgiveness and God or really anything on the planet at all, but let's grab coffee. And I mean that, right? You can ask questions. I'll do my best to answer them. Uh, my phone number is on the bottom of page two in your, your bulletin. Uh, you, you can call or text me there. Now, I, I'm going to close with a, a quote from one of my favorite writers, J.C. Ryle. He's with the Lord now. Uh, he says this, Like Jesus, let us return good for evil and blessing for cursing. Like him, let us pray for those who persecute us and wish evil on us. The pride of our hearts may often rebel against this idea, but never let us be ashamed to imitate our divine master. The person who prays for his enemies shows the mind that is Christ Jesus. Let's pray. You, Lord, showed grace to those who persecuted you, even while you hung upon the cross, not for your sin, but for my sin for the sin of every man, woman, and child in, in the wearum this morning, all who look to you with faith. You, you do the same for everyone who did and does and will look to Christ with faith. May we learn to rest in your work and be transformed by the Holy Spirit to follow your lead by loving our enemies and those who persecute us with the same grace and mercy that you have shown us in the gospel. Change our hearts, Lord. Fill us with the Spirit for this seemingly impossible task at times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.